Blog Talk Radio. So, uh, 
those voices uh, I'm never going to hear again, uh, or you guys won't hear them ever again. And, uh, you know, I have the privilege and honor of having all these shows archived that I've saved in my personal library that I can go back and I can listen. And that's what's so important about, the, you know, doing these types of podcasts. And it's so important to, you know, speak knowledge and give information to help people or help yourself or, or just have a conversation about things and how many people that I, I and or we have helped throughout the years just by bringing the message that we've brought. We've talked about some serious issues here on this podcast show. We've called people, put them on the spot, and talked about very important things that affect us every single day, that that reflect on our lives every day. The issues that we've talked about, whether or not the things that we've talked about come true or not, the things that we've talked about have affect us. So it makes you wonder why so many others have not, you know, gravitated towards something like this, a show like this. And then you think, you think we don't, you know, we we just don't have, pay attention to any. That's what we examine. We examine, understanding the times in which we live today. We're, 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 unless you know me or you heard about me or came in contact with me through somebody else, or I've been on one of my many social media platforms or something, you would never know about this podcast show. But again, I opened up with some come back. Why do so many not come back and listen? And and why just, you know, uh, everyone is always invited to come back and contribute as much as they would like. And at one time, this pod, I had so many people trying to call in and be a part of the podcast show, it actually became a nuisance. It became a liability. There were just too many callers. So I started, what I did was, is I just started doing the show on sporadic nights instead of having a special night and doing it on a, on a one particular night or having a schedule to keep. Like I would have a, well, Joe's going to be on on this. I remember I had a certain time I would come on all the time. And the phone lines just became too, too, then too packed. And then, of course, we uh, obtained a lot of trolls and a lot of people that didn't belong to the podcast that shouldn't be on something on, on the internet radio because they don't have the responsibility or to and uh, to enjoy liberty like this. They didn't know how to act, and we heard a lot of those. They became uh, debatable. Uh, argumentative, and, and and that lost a lot of people. But but either way, you know, we should all be taking advantage of the the powerful tool this is of this this podcasting capability. Thirty years ago, it was unheard of to get information like this and to obtain information that we can use and learn from each other and have a conversation with so many different people live. But yet, we all choose to go about our lives doing our own thing, our busy schedules, because taking two hours out of one's day is a very, very difficult thing to ask of people today, unless there's something in it for them. 
that they can have right away, that they can enjoy right away, that they can use right away. If it doesn't benefit that person or you right here and now, most people don't care and they won't partake and they won't become involved. And then there's your answer to understanding the times in which we live today. Now you understand, pretty much in a nutshell, why we're in the positions we're in. I don't know. That's, there's no, it's not, that's not an educated way of explaining it. That's just, and that's not a real sophisticated way of explaining it. That is just common sense. If you are to sit back and look around, or just for the instance of this podcast show, just sit and listen. But uh, not having uh, my father as a part of the podcast uh, is very, very difficult to uh, carry on with the, with the podcast. So, um, but on if Tuesdays we do do the Republic podcast. Uh, with the Republic, uh, members of the Republic, and, and I advise you to listen. It's, uh, it's on on Tuesdays. It's on at uh, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can go and check it out. You're not going to be entertained. You're not going to be dancing. You're not going to feel good about yourself, you know, and, and inherit all kinds of Federal Reserve notes. And But you're going to learn about your government, your real government. But... Tonight we're going to examine the many secrets of the New World Order and exactly what is life. What is life? Why you should not fear death, maybe, even. Imagine if nobody feared death at all. And there were no rules to the game. What utter chaos we may have if nobody had no final solution or end result. Imagine if death didn't exist. What would stop anybody or everybody from doing whatever they wanted to do? Well, let's examine life. Exactly. What is life? Let's get into that subject here and uh, listen to something here and uh, learn a little something here tonight. The many secrets that they don't want you to know about. Statements. Statement one. After I die, I shall be reborn again as a baby, but I shall forget my former life. Uh, we got a letter one day from this mother in Oklahoma, and she says that for the last year, their five-year-old boy Ryan had talked about a past life in Hollywood. And he would cry about uh, Hollywood wanting his mom to take him back there. Statement two. After I die, the baby will be born. Now, I believe that those two statements are saying exactly the same thing. And we know that the second one is true. Babies are always being born. Conscious beings of all kinds are constantly coming into existence after others died. And why would I think 
that the two statements are really the same statement. But after all, if you die and your memory comes to an end, and you forget who you were, being reborn again is exactly the equivalent of somebody else being born. Because we have no consciousness of our continuity unless we have memory. If the memory goes, then we might just as well be somebody else. She decided to go to the public library and check out some books on Hollywood. And they were looking through one one day when they came to a picture from an old movie called Night After Night. What do I want? I want to know myself. And BetterHelp makes that possible. BetterHelp. And Ryan pointed to one of the men in the picture and said, uh, hey, Mama, that's George. We did a picture together. And he pointed to another one of the men and said, and Mama, that's me. I found me. And he was an extra with no lines in the movie. Eventually, with the help of a Hollywood archivist, she went to the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. There was one picture that included an identification of this guy, and he was a fellow named Marty Martin, uh, who died in 1984. Ryan said how he had danced on stage in New York. Uh, Marty Martin danced on Broadway. Ryan said he then went to Hollywood and, and worked in the movies, which Marty Martin did. He said that he then worked for an agency, and Marty Martin started a successful talent agency. Ryan said how he had seen the world from big boats and talked about visiting Paris. Uh, Marty Martin and his wife went to Europe on the Queen Mary, and we have pictures of them in Paris. Ryan said his address had the word rock or mount in it, and uh, Marty Martin lived on North Roxbury. Ryan also said one time he didn't understand why God would let you get to be 61 and then make you come back again as a baby. Marty Martin's death certificate says that he was 59. Uh, but then I talked with his daughter and with his stepson, who both said no, he was actually 61. So I looked into it and I found three census records two marriage listings and messenger lists that all gave ages for Marty Martin that meant, in fact, he was 61 when he died and not 59. Um, and altogether, we verified that over 50 of Ryan's statements matched with Marty Martin's life. Of course, everybody wishes to hold forever to the memories and to the people and the situation that he particularly loves. But surely, if we think this through, is that what she will want? Because it is forgetting about things that renews their wonder. Just think, when you opened your eyes on the world for the first time as a child, how brilliant colors were. What a jewel sun What marvels the stars. How incredibly alive the trees were. That's all because they were new to your heart. By the time she found me, I was already getting stiff because I died in the morning and people really didn't come into my room until about 10 a.m. Oh, my gosh. And so at, at about that, they started uh, measuring my vital signs. And uh, there were no vital signs for an hour and a half, at which time they gave up. 
was 20 years before they were discovered. And um, thank God I, I, I did lectures about them and documented it so that I can prove what I'm saying. But uh, I was not a scientist or an astronomer or a physicist, but I had seen things that I could report on, and, and they turned out to be very accurate. solar panels on my home, but they're too expensive. I get this comment all the time. And the good news is it's dead. recent survey of more than 100 near-death experiences in which people reported seeing things from an out-of-body perspective found that more than 90% were completely accurate in what they said. Eddie was a nine-year-old boy who was hospitalized in a coma for meningitis. He was in a coma for about 36 hours before his fever finally broke. His family were gathered around him by the bedside all night long. And finally, about 3 a.m., he opened his eyes and excitedly told his parents that he had just been to heaven. And he'd seen his dead grandfather and Auntie Rosa and Uncle Lorenzo. And then he said, I also saw my sister Teresa, who told me I had to come back. Now, Teresa was his older sister who was in college in Vermont. And as far as anyone knew, it was perfectly healthy. Later that morning, when his parents went home, they immediately called the college. And they found that Teresa had, in fact, been killed in a car accident just after midnight. How did Eddie know about that? Why do I feel that the world is centered in this place, as distinct from some other place? You jolly well know the world is centered where you are. A really strange feeling of the idea that other people jolly well exist in the same sense you do. Everybody's name is I. That's what you call yourself. So there will always be eyes in the world. Every eye is in a way the same eye. We all might be anyone else. And there is no escape. It goes on and on and on on. So long as there is consciousness anywhere, there is I. You then, in a way, look out through all eyes. And that, perhaps, is the secret of the great virtue of compassion. What I learned, and what I believe to this day, is that um, the, the, body, the physical body that we live in actually gives us um, uh, uh, the most beautiful vehicle ever imagined to experience time and space. There may be people here that think they're in pain, that uh, think their life is not anything like they want. But I tell you, um, I have met people that would give you anything for the worst day of your life because even the worst day of your life is so filled with potential. No matter how hard I try, I cannot recall what it was like being dead. I know that I was, but I have no idea what it was like. I was actually dead for a pretty long time too. Based on what I've been told, I was dead for between 13.7 and 13.8 billion years. Regardless of whether we want to admit it, we all fear death. 
The awareness of our impending mortality is one of, if not the most influencing force on our experience of life. The things we do, the thoughts we have, the feelings we experience. Everything is driven by both our unconscious nature to stay clear of death and our conscious awareness of the fact that at some point we will have to face it. Our bodies and minds are mere rentals gifted to us by the universe for a vacation of conscious physical existence and at some point they must be returned. The place in which they return to, however, is the same place in which we received them from. Whatever that experience of no experience was before I was born, the 13.73 billion years of time, energy, and matter that I can't recall or describe, the thing that I manifested out of, and the thing that I would dissolve back into, I have already experienced it. You have already experienced it. We have all already experienced it. Even if you believe that your spirit, soul, energy, or whatever else you might call it is infinite, then its infiniteness must go both forward and back. If you believe in an afterlife, then in principle there must be a before life, because if you end up somewhere after physical conscious form, then you must have come from somewhere before physical conscious form. And if you argue that you must be born physically to access an afterlife, you are declaring that you must be a physical entity to access a non-physical thing, which completely folds in on itself. Arguably, no matter how hard we might try to paint a picture of something different after this life, there appears to be no way around the idea that in terms of personal experience, whatever came before our life is what will essentially come after. This means that you have been dead before. You know what it is like. To your conscious, subjective self, for lack of better terms, it is like absolutely nothing. This nothing is not the sort of nothing that we typically consider nothing to be. It is a nothing that we cannot describe, understand, or recall. A subsistence far beyond our consciousness and sense of self. Something that doesn't require either, and thus to our consciousness and sense of self, it is nothing. This nothing, however, is not scary. Before you were born, you were perfectly fine with this nothing, perhaps more fine than you can even fathom. Being dead is not scary. The conscious thought of dying without being at terms with it is scary. Naturally, coming to terms with our mortality is extremely difficult. We rarely ever discuss or address it at a level of self-honesty and vulnerability. It is rare that death in any real sense comes up in conversation and it is rare that we ever deeply meditate on the fact that we will all die sometime in the relatively near future. However, it is essential that we do confront the thought of death regularly and honestly. By becoming deeply aware of our mortality, we intensify our experience of every aspect of life writes author Robert Greene. No matter what we do to veil or distract ourselves away from the awareness of death, 
The awareness will continue to buzz inside of us. When we do not address and embrace the buzzing, it only becomes loud and more intrusive. It causes us to feel intensifying levels of anxiety, aversion, and disorientation. Instead, we must learn how to live with this buzzing and transmute it into the sound of life itself. We must accept death as an essential part of life. Doing things the second time around is almost always less intimidating than the first. So if we consider the year that we have already experienced what it means to be dead and come to terms with the fact that we will experience it again and be totally and utterly okay, then death becomes easier to face, easier to reduce our fear and apprehension towards. To reduce our fear of death is to crack open the door to life itself. We become more inspired to do things that are interesting, exciting, and fulfilling, rather than being stuck in a cycle of wasting time, feeling anxious, and latching on to material distractions. At some point, we will lose our ability to experience things as we know them. Like it or not, that is the condition of our human experience. If we wish to make the most of our human experience, instead of living in spite of its conditions, we must accept them. Like a vacation to our favorite destination, we should not our awareness of the trip's end date ruin our vacation. For if a vacation went on forever, it would no longer be a vacation at all. Against all odds, we were given the opportunity to go on this vacation, to experience nature perceiving itself. Ironically, our fear of losing our ability to experience this is what can ruin our ability to ever actually enjoy it. And we mustn't let this happen and squander such a gift. More than death itself, we should fear never overcoming the idea of death while we are alive. We should fear not appreciating life and death for what they are, while we can. Uh, Joseph Gibson, understanding the times in which we live today. MogTalkRadio.com forward slash Joseph Gibson. All right. What is life? Explained here in full as the best we can here. Uh, from what I gather from the information that I'm studying and, and uh, uh, being born. Let's, let's, let's go into that, born, the entire history of the universe. Let's look at that, that scenario here. This is hard to imagine, but we have often struggled with the concept of nothing. The biblical story of creation tells us that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But what existed before God's creation, in a moment before time, in a place, before space? The Bible simply does not say. And indeed, our scientific theories and observations also tell us that our universe has not existed for eternity. They tell us that 14 billion years ago, it had a beginning, a fiery birth in a maelstrom of particles and energy. And it has been expanding and cooling ever since. So what came before 
cosmologists offer tantalizing possibilities. Maybe our universe was begotten from a previous existence part of an endless cycle, or formed in the violent collision between two other universes. But perhaps the most unsettling answer of all is that our universe was born from nothing. And if that is the case, how does one get something from nothing? Is no electron as real as one or two? When electric or magnetic fields are at zero, are the fields still there? These might seem like strange questions to ask, but by the early 20th century, our notion of physical reality had become somewhat fuzzy. The rigid clockwork universe of Newton had been replaced. Einstein had turned space and time on their heads with his theory of relativity, and experiments showed that the world of the very small was governed by a totally new set of physical laws. In the world of atoms and electrons, physicists spoke not of certainties, but of probabilities. Probabilities governed by brand new rules. The mathematics of quantum mechanics. But this is not how we see the world. Our macroscopic large-scale world is one ruled by certainties, by things, by reason and logic. Nothing is nothing. Something is something. And when you put your cup of coffee on the table, it stays there every time. Yet the distant world of the very small, the world of quantum strange in which something can be born out of nothing and matter can pass through matter has more of an effect on us and the entire universe than we might think. To understand this, we are going to go on a journey across time and space. From the universe's first moments to its far-flung future, we are going to unpack the meaning of quantum mechanics, explore its impact on the cosmos around us, leading us to the biggest question of all. Just where did the universe come from? attempting to piece together the seemingly nonsensical world of the atom. 
he understood that in an atom, electrons orbit a nucleus. But if these orbits were like planets orbiting the sun, the atom would collapse in a fraction of a second and simply cease to exist. So what rules governed the motion of electrons? Everything he had tried failed as his mathematics became unwieldy and unruly. And now his summer hay fever had hit. His head was becoming cloudy, his nose stuffy. He decided to escape. Seeking sanctuary on the small island of Heligoland, located in the North Sea, he hoped the fresh, salty air would clear his mind. And it was on tiny, isolated Heligoland, whilst relaxing one evening, that he was hit by a revelation that totally changed our understanding of reality. It had all begun in 1900, with Max Planck's desperate attempts to explain how hot objects glow. He knew that in hot objects, atoms jiggled, and it was this jiggling that produced the rainbow's colors he could see. In classical physics, all possible jiggles were allowed, but to agree with experiments, Planck added a new, unexpected ingredient. He restricted the jiggles, so energies were present in distinct individual chunks. And in quantizing these jiggles, quantum mechanics was born. By the 1920s, this world of a very small, the world of atoms and electrons, had become a strange and complex place. Just like energy, the orbits of electrons appeared to be quantized too, existing at specific distances from the nucleus. And in 1925, Erwin Schrödinger wrote down his wave equation to explain quantum mechanics. Objects like electrons were no longer in a particular place. Instead, they were fuzzy and spread out, described by something known as a wave function. Heisenberg had been caught up in this swirling, heady mix of quantum theory. Like others, he was trying to bend well-established rules to explain how electrons orbited in atoms. Perhaps they underwent a little oscillations, something Heisenberg knew how to calculate. However, like all the attempts before, his calculations failed to explain what the experimenters were telling him. But in the cool, fresh sea air of Heligoland, new ideas quickly crystallized. He realized that we can never actually observe an electron in its orbit. What we see are the emitted frequencies of light as electrons from one orbit to another. So why bother trying to calculate the details of the orbit? He decided what we should calculate is what we can actually observe in our experiments. Heisenberg began working through the mathematics, ignoring how the electron was precisely moving, and it was then things came into stark clarity. His new mathematics worked. The form of the equations in front of him seemed strange, but a mathematician would have recognized them as matrices. Whilst these are common in physics today, there was still a novelty in the 1920s. Heisenberg did not sleep that night, instead setting off on a pre-dawn walk. He sat and watched the first rays of the sun peek over the horizon from a rocky outcrop on the island. As the day warmed, he realized he had a new mathematical way of explaining the world of the very small. But what a bizarre world he had found. Hi, my name is Amy, and I would like you to...
you to give you a few reasons why you should consider dating a young lady lady. You can choose a potential spouse from Ukraine, Russia, Belarus. Geography is boundless. Have you noticed that lady women? Heisenberg's mathematics tallied with Schrodinger's. They did not talk of where an electron is, only where it might be. And when it came to an electron's speed, the description is equally vague. How an electron jumps from one orbit to the next was unknowable, just the energy emitted when it did so. And he didn't talk about the precise time the electron would make such a quantum jump, just the chances of the jump occurring. The quantum world was not a work of precision. The quantum world was one of probabilities. Staring at his equations, Heisenberg realized the vagueness in position and speed were in fact related. He saw that the more accurately we can discern a position, the less certain we are of speed. And if we try to accurately determine speed, the position is fuzzier. Imagine you put an electron in a tiny box. In the classical world, the electron would happily rattle around, bouncing off the walls. If you cool the electron, it will move slower and slower. Eventually, you can cool the electron to absolute zero, and it would sit at rest, not moving. But Heisenberg's uncertainty principle means that in quantum mechanics, this is strictly forbidden. As we know where the electron is, confined within the walls of the box, there is a fuzzy limit to what we can know of its speed. No matter what we do, quantum physics prevents us from... All right, quantum physics there. What is life? And uh, well, where do we go? And what happens after death? Uh, where, where do we go after death? You know, um, there's one here that uh, we, uh, yeah, I got one here. Uh, this one's a really good one right here. Um, this is this guy here. Uh, this, is, this is probably a, the best one right here. It's about 19 minutes long, but the, it's, a, it's a good one to listen to if you want to know about life. Uh, I'll, I'll put this one on here real quick. Anybody wants to call in, then they can press one after uh, six five seven three eight three zero six one six. I need a reason to wake up. For me, it just took eleven thousand volts. I know you're too polite to ask, so I will tell you. One night, sophomore year of college, just back from Thanksgiving holiday, a few of my friends and I were horsing around. We decided to climb atop a parked commuter train. It's just sitting there with the wires that run overhead. Somehow that seemed like a great idea at the time. We'd certainly done stupider things. Um, I scurried up the ladder on the back, and when I stood up, the electrical current entered my arm, blew down and out my feet, and that was that. Would you believe that watch still works? <laughs> Take some licking. My father wears it now in solidarity. That night began my formal relationship with death. Uh, my death. And it also began my long run as a patient. It's a good word. It means one who suffers. So I guess we're all patients. Now, the American healthcare system has more than its fair share of dysfunction. To match its brilliance, to be sure. Uh, I'm a physician now, a hospice and palliative medicine doc, so I've seen care from both sides. 
And believe me, most everyone who goes into healthcare really means well. I mean, truly. But we who work in it are also unwitting agents for a system that too often does not serve. Why? Well, there's actually a pretty easy answer to that question. It explains a lot. Because healthcare was designed with diseases, not people, at its center. Which is to say, of course, it was badly designed. And nowhere are the of bad design more heartbreaking or the opportunity for good design more compelling than at the end of life, where things are so distilled and concentrated. There's no do-overs. My purpose today is to reach out uh, across disciplines and invite design thinking into this big conversation. That is, to bring intention and creativity to the experience of dying. We have a monumental opportunity in front of us before a universal, one of the few universal issues as individuals as well as a civil society to rethink and redesign how it is we die. So let's begin at the end. For most people, the scariest thing about death isn't being dead, it's dying, suffering. It's a key distinction. And to get underneath this, it can be very helpful to tease out suffering, which is necessary, as it is, uh, suffering we can change. The former is a natural, essential part of life, part of the deal. And to this, we are called to make space, adjust, grow. It can be really good to realize forces larger than ourselves. They bring proportionality, like a cosmic right-sizing. After my limbs were gone, that loss, for example, became fact, fixed, necessarily part of my life. And I learned I could no more reject uh, this fact and reject myself. It took me a while, but I'd learned it eventually. Now, another great thing about necessary suffering is that it is the very thing that uh, unites caregiver and care receiver, uh, human beings. This, we are finally realizing, is where healing happens. Yes, compassion. Literally, as we learned yesterday, suffering together. Now, on the systems side, on the other hand, so much of the suffering is unnecessary, invented. Serves no good purpose. But the good news is, since this brand of suffering is made up, well, we can change it. How we die is indeed something we can affect. Now, making the system sensitive to this fundamental distinction between necessary and unnecessary suffering gives us our first of three design cues for the day. After all, our role as caregivers, as people who care, is to relieve suffering, not add to the pile. True to the tenets of palliative care, I function as something of a reflective 
advocate as much as a prescribing physician. Uh, quick aside, palliative care, very important field, but poorly understood. Uh, while it includes, it is not limited to end-of-life care. It is not limited to hospice. It's simply about comfort and living well at any stage. Okay, so please know that you don't have to be dying anytime soon to benefit from palliative care. Now, let me introduce you to Frank. Um, he sort of makes this point. I've been seeing Frank now for years. He's living with advancing prostate cancer on top of long-standing HIV. We work on his bone pain and his fatigue, but most of the time we spend thinking out loud together about his life, really about our lives. In this way, Frank grieves. In this way, he keeps up with his losses as they roll in so that he's ready to take in the next moment. Loss is one thing, but regret quite another. Frank has always been an adventurer. Looks like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting, and no fan of regret. So it wasn't surprising when he came into clinic one day saying he wanted to raft down the Colorado River. Was this a good idea? You know, with all the risks to his safety and his health, some would say no, many did, but he went for it while he still could. And it was a glorious, marvelous trip freezing water, blistering dry heat, scorpion snakes, wildlife howling off the flaming walls of the Grand Canyon. All the glorious side of the world beyond our control. Now Frank's decision, while maybe dramatic, is exactly the kind so many of us would make if we only had the support to figure out what is best for ourselves over time. So much of what we're talking about today is a shift in perspective. After my accident, when I went back to college, I uh, changed my major to art history. Studying uh, visual art, I figured I'd learn something about how to see. A really potent lesson for a kid who couldn't change so much of what he was seeing. Perspective, that kind of alchemy we humans get to play with, turning anguish into a flower. Flash forward, now I work at a, an amazing place in San Francisco called the Zen Hospice Project, where we have a little ritual that helps with this shift in perspective. When one of our residents dies, the mortuary men come, and as we're wheeling the body out through the garden, heading for the gate, we pause. Anyone who wants, fellow residents, family, nurses, volunteers, the hearse drivers too now, share a story or a song or silence as we sprinkle the body with flower petals. It takes a few minutes, a sweet, simple parting image to usher in grief with warmth rather than repugnance. Contrast that with the typical experience in the hospital setting. Much like this, floodlit room lined with tubes and beeping machines and blinking lights that don't stop even when the patient's life has. Cleaning crew swoops in, the body's whisked away. It's all, it feels as though that person had never really existed. Well-intended, of course, in the name of sterility, but hospitals tend to assault our senses. And the most we might hope for within those walls is numbness, anesthetic, 
literally the opposite of aesthetic. I revere hospitals for what they can do. I am alive because of them. But we ask too much of our hospitals. They are places for acute trauma and treatable illness. They're no place to live and die. That's not what they were designed for. Now, mind you, I'm not giving up on the notion that our institutions can become more humane. Beauty can be found anywhere. I spent a few months in a burn unit uh, at St. Barnabas Hospital in Livingston, New Jersey, where <clears throat> I got really great care at every turn, including good palliative care for my pain. And one night, it began to snow outside. I remember, <laughs> I remember my nurses complaining about driving through it. And there was no window in my room, but it was great to just imagine it coming down all sticky. Next day, one of my nurses smuggled in a snowball for me. She brought it into the unit. I cannot tell you the rapture I felt holding it in my hand. The coldness dripping onto my burning skin, the miracle of it all, the fascination as I watched it melt and turn into water. In that moment, just being any part of this planet in this universe mattered more to me than whether I lived or died. That little snowball packed all the inspiration I needed to both try to live and be okay if I did not. In a hospital, that's a stolen moment. In my work over the years, I've known many people who were ready to go, ready to die. And not because they had found some final peace or transcendence, but because they were so repulsed by what their lives had become. In a word, cut off or ugly. There are already record numbers of us living with chronic and terminal illness and into ever older age. And we are nowhere near ready or prepared for this silver tsunami. We need an infrastructure dynamic enough to handle these seismic shifts in our population. Now is the time to create something new, something vital. I know we can because we have to. The alternative is just unacceptable. And the key ingredients are known. Policy, education and training, systems, bricks and mortar. We have tons of input for designers of all stripes to work with. We know, for example, from research, what's most important to people who are closer to death. Comfort, feeling unburdened and unburdening to those they love, existential peace, and a sense of wonderment and spirituality. Over Zen Hospice's nearly 30 years, we've learned much more from our residents in subtle detail. Little things aren't so little. Take Jeanette. She finds it harder to breathe one day to the next due to ALS. Well, guess what? She wants to start smoking again. <laughs> and French cigarettes, if you please. Um, not out of some self-destructive bent, but to feel her lungs filled while she has them. Priorities change. 
or Kate. She just wants to know her dog Austin is lying at the foot of her bed. His cold muzzle against her dry skin. Instead of more chemotherapy coursing through her veins, she's done that. Sensuous aesthetic gratification where in a moment, in an instant, we are rewarded for just being. So much of it comes down to loving our time by way of the senses, by way of the body, the very thing doing the living and the dying. Probably the most poignant room in the Zen Hospice guest house is our kitchen, which is a little strange when you realize that so many of our residents can eat very little, if anything at all, but we realize we are providing sustenance on several levels. Smell, symbolic plane, Seriously, with all the heavy-duty stuff happening under our roof, one of the most tried-and-true interventions we know of is to bake cookies. As long as we have our senses, even just one, we have at least the possibility of accessing what makes us feel human, connected. You know, imagine the ripples of this notion for the millions of people living and dying with dementia. Primal sensorial delights that say the things we don't have words for. Impulses that make us stay present. No need for a past or a future. So, if teasing unnecessary suffering out of the system was our first design cue, hmm, then tending to dignity by way of the senses, by way of the body, the aesthetic realm is design cue number two. Now this gets us quickly to the third and final bit for today. Namely, we need to lift our sights, to set our sights on well-being, that life can become, and health, and health care can become about making life more wonderful rather than just less horrible. Beneficence. Here, this gets right at the distinction between a disease-centered and a patient or human-centered model of care. And here is where caring becomes a creative, generative, even playful act. Play may sound like a funny word here. But it's also one of our highest forms of adaptation. Consider every major compulsory effort it takes to be human. The need for food is birth cuisine. The need for shelters given rise to architecture. The need for cover, fashion. And for being subjected to the clock, well, we invented music. So, since dying is a part of life, what might we create with this fact? By play, I am in no way suggesting that we take a light approach to dying or that we mandate any particular way of dying. There are mountains of sorrow that cannot move. And one way or another, we will all kneel there. Rather, I am asking we make space, physical, psychic room, to allow life to play itself all the way out so that rather than just getting out of age, Aging and dying can become a process of crescendo through to the end. We can't 
we can't solve for debts. <laughs> I know some of you are working on this. <laughs> What about people that have come back after uh, death and, have, and they share their near-death experiences or they died and came back with a message? You know, uh, There's lots of people out there that have their testimonies that, uh, um, that uh, talk about uh, you know, uh, life after, after death. So uh, let's uh, a six-minute story here on this one. Every online banking and payment system, every email, text. I didn't see what he was yelling at. I didn't see the ambulance coming, but I remembered him yelling. That was the last thing I'm him. On a Sunday morning in 1997, Julie Kemp, her husband Andy, and their eight-year-old son Landon were driving home from church when an ambulance returning to its station broadsided their car in an intersection. Andy died instantly. Rescuers stabilized Julie, but did not realize there was a third passenger in the car. They couldn't see his body because of the damage that was done to the driver's side of the car, and Landon was sitting behind his dad. And when they saw Landon's shoe, it took a deeper search for his body. And they pulled Landon out. Um, from the back of the car, he was not breathing, and they all started working on him right away to bring him back. Landon was resuscitated and life-flighted to Carolina's medical center. He died two more times that day, and both times he was brought back to life. Doctors didn't give Julie much hope for his survival. They told me that if he lived, which did not look good, but that if he lived, that he would be like an eight-year-old baby. That um, he would not know how to walk or talk or to eat. I was so desperate that that was okay. I would take that just to have him. He was all that I had. At her husband's funeral, Julie remembers feeling abandoned by God. I was very disappointed, heartbroken. And when I'm sitting at the funeral, I'm fussing at God. I don't understand um, why this happened. I don't understand um, why he didn't send angels to protect us. But in the very next breath, I'm praying as hard to him as I've ever prayed in my life for Landon to live. Landon had suffered massive head trauma during the accident and remained in a coma. He's hooked up to all kinds of machines to keep him alive. And there are no signs. There's nothing good or bad. They see nothing happening. I kept praying that he would open his eyes. After two weeks in a coma, Landon opened his eyes. To everyone's amazement, he had no brain damage. But in the midst of her joy, Julie knew she had to tell Landon about his father. He had scars on his face and his head was just full of hurt. And I didn't want to hurt him anymore. So I asked Landon, I said, Landon, do you know where your dad is at? And he told me, yes, I know where he's at. I saw him in heaven. Landon is now grown, but still clearly remembers his amazing experiences in heaven. 
I remember being able to see my dad and his friend Owen Palmer, who had passed away less than a month before he did, also in a car accident, and Owen's son, Neil Palmer, who had died on a four-wheeler years before. Never one of us said a word to each other, but we were just all standing there. He looked over to me and says, oh, Mom, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I saw your other two kids. And I just looked at him because um, I, I wasn't sure what he was talking about, but um, I had two miscarriages before Landon was born. We had never shared that with Landon. He did not know that um, we had lost two children before him. I had knew that they were my siblings, even though no one had ever told me about them. Just being in heaven, I, I guess you know you know your own or you know who everyone is. He says each time he died, he had a different experience in heaven. During the third time, he says he met Jesus and was given a mission. It was almost as if like um, a preview of a movie to where you only get to see certain bits and pieces of things. Jesus came to me and told me that I have to go back to earth and be a good Christian and tell others about him. Today, through Grief Share, Landon and Julie used their story to help others who are struggling with loss and in need of hope. I didn't understand in 1997, you know, why God didn't send an angel, but I know that there were angels there, and I know that um, we were protected, and we are living out what His plan is for us. Instead of staying mad at Him, I was able to this story to help others not to give up and to um, keep their faith on their grief journey. I just want people to realize that Jesus is real. There is a heaven. There are angels. And um, to follow his word in the Bible and life does get better at the end. In her book, Faith Has Its Reasons, Julie says God has used their experience to bring others closer to him and has brought new blessings to them. It is a huge blessing that I get to watch my child tell others about Jesus. He is always willing to let others know that there is a heaven because he's been there. I know I'm doing it for Jesus. I know that he's real. I know that angels are there. I know that there's a heaven. I'm not doing it for someone who I don't know or I've never seen. I've seen Jesus. I know he's there. He's asked me to do this, and this is what I'm doing. You can't fool God. You can't cheat God. He knows who you are. In the dream, I was driving in my car, and I came upon this accident thing that had to do with semi-trucks. And so when I started waking up out of the dream, I was like, I could feel it was a dream from the Lord, and I felt burdened. And so I began to pray right away. March of 2000. Two months after Cheryl Schulte's dramatic dream, her sister Valerie Paters was in a freeway pileup near her home in Flagstaff, Arizona. Valerie's car was crushed under the weight of a semi-truck, and it took first responders several hours to extract her from the vehicle. A mutual friend was on the scene and got word to Cheryl that Valerie was unconscious and not expected to survive. We hung up the phone, and the minute we hung up, I started praying. I said, God, how do you want me to pray for Valerie? And he said, pray that she will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. Those words from Psalm 118, verse 17, gave Cheryl hope as she prayed for her sister's life. It stirred my faith 
to believe that the impossible was possible already before I even saw her. So when I did see her, I was not moved by what I saw in the hospital because I didn't even recognize her. But what moved me was the Word of God. A prayer chain quickly started as word spread through their church community. But when Cheryl got to the hospital, doctors gave her a grim report. They pretty much told us she had, you know, we had no hope that she was probably not going to make it. There was no brain activity. Um, they kept her on life support to harvest her organs. Cheryl would not give up. She gathered friends and continued praying for Valerie to wake from her coma. I want those that I have already prayed with or one in spirit that will believe God's word and we're going to go to war and we're going to pray over Valerie. And so we took a time one day, I think it was on a Wednesday, we went into the chapel and we took over the chapel and the chapel became like a war room. We went in there and we just began to speak life over her. We prayed over her. Their prayers continued for days, but there were no visible signs of improvement. Meanwhile, Valerie was experiencing a very different reality in heaven. When I stepped into heaven, I mean, I, I hit the light, and I was literally blinded by the light. I'm blinded still today of the light of his presence. I stood up, I turned around, and there was Jesus. And I don't know if I, I ran to him or he came to me. I mean, all of a sudden we were there. He just smiled at me, and I felt all this emotion that he had for me. I finally felt like I, I was home. It was like I stepped into, finally, I belong. This is where I belong. Just, I was home. Valerie had been a Christian for most of her life, but says she never believed that God really loved her. In my heart of hearts, I did not believe that I was worthy of his love. Because I always felt like I was never going to measure up to what I thought the Lord wanted from me. So when I felt his emotion, I felt how he felt about me. And the things that I, I thought about myself, like my flaws or my, my issues, he never even noticed. He just wants me. It wasn't anything that I, I did for him. It wasn't my performance. Nothing. It was... It was just me. I wasn't just loved by him, but he was in love with me. And I was his. I, that was it. I was done for. <laughs> and I, I thought, but then realizing this is how he feels about his creation. Those that he's created, whether they know him yet or not, this is how he feels. Valerie says she felt like she was there for a thousand years and experienced life and love like she never had on earth. Then, Jesus told her she had to go back with a message. He said, you can stay if you want to. And I said, well, if I can stay, I'm staying with you. I'm going to stay with you. And he said, but your purpose isn't done. And he said, I want you to tell them, tell the people who I am who I really am, because I thought he was, you know, religious, I thought he was mean, I thought he was, um, I didn't think he was, you know, human. 
and he, he's human. He'll always be human, but he's God. I didn't want to leave him. I hated leaving, but I had to come back. And the next thing I knew, I was making, like, my descent back to the earth. At the hospital days after the accident, the medical team began reacting to new signs of life. And the doctor's checking, he's flashing the light in her eyes, and, and he, he looks at me and he said, get ready, I think your sister's coming back, I see some brain activity. I, I just began to rejoice, rejoice, and I said, thank you, Lord. Valerie soon woke up and experienced a miraculous recovery. Two and a half months after the accident, she walked out of the hospital, healed both physically and spiritually. Dispense supplements virtually on one platform. The light started to appear. And that's when I realized that this was death. This was my death. When I died, I was 31. What I experienced from that moment on just changed my life forever. My name is Betty J. Edie. I am 78 years old. I had a near-death experience. My name is Jesse Sawyer, and I've had a near-death experience. If anybody had told me 10 years ago that I would have had a near-death experience, I would not have believed them. I didn't believe in these things. I didn't even believe in God anymore. I had started becoming sick, and I was going to different doctors and specialists, and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And eventually, after nine months of different tests and smaller procedures, they decided that a hysterectomy would help them kind of get a better idea of what was happening inside of me. They didn't find anything wrong on the inside. Um, they did a uterine and ovarian biopsy, and everything was clear. So after two nights in the hospital, I was released to go home. It would probably only been six to eight hours, and I just felt this extreme pain in my stomach. It felt like someone had taken out my insides and put them in a blender, blown low power, poured gasoline on them, lit them on fire, and then shoved them back inside of me. So my husband rushed me to the ER. They admitted me. I had very low blood pressure. My heart rate was 145. I was running a low-grade fever, and they did some scans and found out that I was bleeding internally. I didn't have enough blood in my system to really put me back into a surgery. So I started receiving antibiotics. I had blood transfusion. It was probably between like 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And when I slept, I, I, there was no way I ever could escape the pain. But I'm staring at the wall, and it was like the best way I can describe it is that my eyes opened, and then they opened again. And when they opened again, I was in this endless, misty, white room. It was like just this space. And the very first thing that I realized was that I was able to stand up, which is something that I hadn't been able to do since the surgery. And I was astonished at how perfect I felt. No pain. I just, I felt like the perfect version of myself and so that really stuck with me and in the distance 
I saw somebody kind of waiting, and I immediately, even though I, I didn't see this person at first, I immediately recognized who it was, and it was um, one of my best friends named A, who had died about two years before. And I was just so happy to see him. I wanted to run up to him. I wanted to hug him. I wanted to tell him how much everybody missed him. And then I realized that this was about me. This wasn't some joyous reunion, that something serious was happening. And then behind Anthony and to my right, the light started to appear. And that's when I realized that this was death. This was my death. And Anthony was there to take me home. The light started off as this shimmer, and then it grew. There's no way you can describe it. It is the most profound, most unconditional love. And the light is everything that ever was and ever will be. I instantly felt connected to the entire universe. I kind of was presented a choice. I had something called a life review where I was shown the impact that I had during my life on the world around me. It wasn't judgmental. It was more subjective. It was, you know, this is the energy that you put into the world during your life, and I love you. I'm part of you. I went in for a routine hysterectomy. And it was during or after the hysterectomy that I actually experienced my death. I was out of recovery and in my private room when I awoke at about 9, 9.30 in the evening. I didn't feel any pain. It was just this feeling as though every last drop of blood had drained from my body. And I tried to reach for the nurse, but I was too weak to reach the little buzzer that they had placed by the side of my bed. I then felt this sensation coming up from my feet, a numbing type thing. And then all of a sudden, I felt a movement in my chest. And then there was a sound, like a pop. My spirit came up out of my body in a very tremendous speed. And I could look down and see my body laying on the bed. While no two near-death experiences are the same, those of us that research them see a very consistent pattern of elements. Very often there's that life-threatening event. The person's nearly dead, they're unconscious, or they may not even have a heartbeat. At that time, they have what's called an out-of-body experience. Consciousness separates from the body and typically goes above the body. They may then go into or through a tunnel. They often see a mystical, unearthly, brilliant light at the end of the tunnel. At the end of the tunnel, they may enter an unearthly, beautiful realm. They may see their deceased relatives at loving reunions, even deceased pets. By this time, they're typically feeling overwhelming, positive emotions. They really feel like this realm that seems unearthly to us is really their home. When I came down and looked at my physical body lying on the bed, then I knew that I had died. And I thought, oh my God, I'm dead. I don't know how I died, but I'm, I'm dead. Then suddenly appearing by the side of my bed were three ancient looking men, ancient in that they were old, but they were beyond old. 
and they explained to me that I had prematurely died. I wanted so much to see my family, so I went out the window and I traveled to my home. My husband was sitting in a chair reading a newspaper, so I went over and stood by him. I felt concerned that he didn't know I had died, and neither did my children, and I worried about them. I worried how their lives would be should I not be there for them. And as I wondered about that, I could see each child. I just saw each phase of their life and that their lives would be fine even without me. So I felt content as any mother would that, you know what, they're going to be okay. Then I went back, traveled quickly back to the hospital bed and was drawn into this immense tunnel. There was sound, there was music, there were chimes. It was extremely relaxing, very comfortable. And I went through the tunnel, into the tunnel, and traveled into this black space. Then suddenly I saw a form at the very end of the light. And as I approached the light, I could see the figure moving with arms spread out like this, and he was Jesus Christ. And I reached for him and put my arms around him as he held me too. And he said, it's not yet your time. It's not yet your time. Want to have a side hustle bringing you an additional income stream, but you don't want to have to build websites or funnels or create some angels or guardians or guards or supporters of him and me came. There were three women, and he said, show her everything that she needs to know. Then they took me to a garden, and they said for me to be there, to stay here, enjoy yourself. I went through the garden and walked, and it was beautiful beyond any description. You just simply can't even imagine the colors and the beauty, the flowers of every kind and other kinds that we don't even have here. This is when I learned that I wouldn't remember a great deal of what was going on. I called these men warring angels and that they came into the garden and they said, are you ready for more? And I said, yes, I am. And they took me, and, and it was like a freedom of flight. It's like we just rose up into the air, and we just went. And we traveled from planet to planet. And then Jesus said that I needed to return back to Earth. And I said, oh, please, I can't go. I, excuse me, I didn't want to, to leave the love that I felt there, the total acceptance. I saw a beautiful man that I recognized to be the Father, God, and I ran to him and fell at his feet, my head on his lap. And he said, you have a mission, and I want you to see what that mission entails. Then you must go back. I remember traveling quickly, 
The next thing I knew, I saw my body. I went into the body because, not because I wanted to, but because I was compelled to. And I felt the dark dankness of it. The human body compared to the spirit body is so, so different. At the end of the experience, there's often a choice about whether to stay in that beautiful realm or to return to their earthly life. When that decision is ultimately made and they return to their earthly life and they recover, then they can share their near-death experience. I was shown how my death would impact my family. So I was shown my two children, who at the time were five and two years old. I was shown what their grief would be like. I was shown how that would impact them throughout their life, that they would miss me, but that they would be okay, that their life would thrive. Another person that really stood out was my husband's grief. That grief was, I felt it, I felt his grief like it was mine. It was really intense. I wanted to float down to my husband's body, which I could see sleeping on the fold-out couch. I wanted to tell him that everything would be okay. Anthony kind of squeezed my shoulder lovingly and he smiled at me like I had answered some unspoken question. And then Anthony and the light both started going this way and I started falling backwards into my body. Going back into my body hurt. Leaving my body did not. It was like jumping into an ice-cold pool after being in a sauna. It's hard for me to say it was a miraculous healing, but I suddenly started expelling all the blood that had been pooling in my abdominal cavity. I expelled over two liters of blood and 800 cc's of fist-sized clots. It scared the entire nursing staff. It scared my family. I mean, it's scary when you see that much blood coming out of a person. But what was odd was that my vitals were improving. I was actually stabilizing, not getting worse. The doctors still don't know what caused my illness to begin with, why my symptoms were happening, exactly where I was bleeding from internally, nor do they know really how I healed from all of that. We've had people blind from birth that have highly visual near-death experiences, and that's medically inexplicable. We have near-death experiences that occur under general anesthesia, and that should be, if you will, doubly impossible to have your heart stop while you're under anesthesia, and yet there are typical near-death experiences. In addition to that, when you think about it, when you have a cardiac arrest or your heart stops beating instantly, blood stops flowing to the brain. 10 to 20 seconds after that, the electroencephalogram, or EEG, a measure of brain electrical activity, goes absolutely flat. It should be impossible to have any kind of a conscious experience, and yet by the hundreds, people report near-death experiences. So at my checkup, I asked my surgeon, so I, I saw a light while I was in the hospital, and I was really careful. And he said, oh, I've, I've heard of that happening to people, but I've never had a patient tell me that. And I said, well, how close was I? And he said, Jesse, you were walking the line there for a while. It was later, five years later, 
But I went to my doctor and I said, something happened to me. I need to discuss it with you and I want to know if you had any idea that I died. And he said, yes, I, 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 I was aware of that. Following a near-death experience, as you can imagine, it's generally very life-transformative. People that have a near-death experience, of course, almost uniformly don't fear death. From their perspective, they know what lies beyond death's door, and they know that it's wonderful. Of course, they have an increased belief in afterlife for exactly the same reason, but their values also change. They tend to become less materialistic, more loving. They may change professions or they may change relationships if they can't express their new values. I started doing service because service is our best gift to God. When we're helping other people, it is to be a service to them. So I went to the hospital here in Seattle and volunteered at the Cancer Research Center where I could work with the dying patients as well as their families. So I did that for several years. I began going to various church organizations to speak, to share. I want to go back, and I had Jesus promise me that he will return me to where I left when I had to leave him. When I started to kind of I guess, rejoining the world, I felt this intense love for everyone. Not that I was necessarily a selfish person beforehand, but this new feeling was that I cared about everybody I saw. I have no fear of dying. Not that I ever really considered death before, but I could die right now and I would be perfectly okay with that. Joseph Gibson here, understanding the times we should live today. All right, so I'll be checking the phone boards here just to see if anybody wants to talk here. I don't know if anybody wants to talk or jump in here. Um, that's totally your call. Uh, let's see here. I had a couple hands up, but they must have hung up and went away. So that's okay. Well, life after death. Um, you know, uh, these are the questions. If we uh, answered some questions for some people out there tonight, hopefully. Um, we'll see what, see what, uh, feedback I get from the, uh, show. Uh, you know, there's some good, good talking points here tonight, um, that we, uh, brought forth. So, uh, you know, uh, let's see here. Let me see what else I got here. All right, we'll play a quick little song here, and then, uh, we'll get ready to wrap up the, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll get ready to wrap it up here. Let's see what we're going to play this year. Uh, I'm just checking the phone board, everybody. That's what I'm doing in the uh, chat room, too. So, all right. Um, that's why I have him, yeah. All right. So, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, most people don't have really too much there to add. But uh, some people did. They left, though. There were some people here on the queue, but they couldn't, uh, you know, didn't want to hang around for too long. So, like I said, opened up the podcast with uh, everybody's in a hurry. Well, you won't be in a hurry when it's time to die. <laughs> I think I'm pretty much, if you didn't learn your lesson from tonight's podcast show, then I don't think you're ever going to learn about anything. So, but uh, we all, one fact is, that is the fact. There is one undeniable fact 
one, just one, okay, that cannot be denied. We're all going to die. All of us are going to die one day. So why not learn about it? Why not understand it? Why not look into it? Why not seek out the truth and understand what we all are going to experience? If we all were going to swim in the same swimming pool, if we're all going to drive the same tank, if we're all going to do the same, if we're all going to fly an airplane, we go to train for it, right? We get practice for it, right? You know, if you're going to become a doctor, you go to school to become a doctor, right? Everybody does it. That wants to become a doctor. Whatever kind of doctor it may be, right? You train for it. Right? How come all of us don't look into this dying thing? Lock Talk Radio, understand the times in which we live today.
borders of your fatherland Now enemies came Traitors everywhere at hand Many people who had fought and died Knowing that they had to win Well yet still it sickens my heart To see the picture of the red flag in Berlin And the snow Bye. 